everyone, I'm Ashley Kane. I'm an arts and culture writer, editor, and creative consultant. Welcome to today's A Future World podcast, NFTs, the democratization or the death of art. A Future World is day's science meets pop culture platform. Please check all the amazing editorial on the site now. There are going to be features on the climate crisis, interviews with cyborgs, visions of our future cities, and more. Today, we're talking art, and like everyone else in the world, we're talking about NFTs. I'm joined by Spike editor and art columnist, Dean Kissick, and Dee Goins, the co-founder of NFT marketplace, Zora. Hi, Dean. Hi, Dee. Thanks for being here with me. Hello. Hi. Hi. <laughs> okay, so we have quite a mountain to climb in terms of this conversation. Um, NFTs have kind of exploded in the past few months and there are still so many question marks that are surrounding them. So depending what corner of the internet you end up on, you're going to find some polarizing opinions, which could range from things like these utopian promises of the NFTs to NFTs being the end of the world as we know it. Um, so we're going to discuss some of these questions, concerns, criticisms, and praises in this little podcast. So I think um, we're focusing mainly on the art world today, but because NFTs are sweeping across different spaces, they're in N NBA trading cards, music, fashion, tweets, we might have some crossover in conversation there. So I think the best place to start for this, for those not in the crypto bubble, is to define what is an NFT. Who wants to begin? So NFT is a, an acronym, which stands for non-fungible token. That means that this digital that we call a token is provably unique, digitally scarce, universally accessible, and individually ownable. Um, when it comes to artwork, you can think of this as in relation to provenance or ownership or the history of art. But broader than that, NFTs at their core are fundamental paradigm shift and really information ownership. I think art is kind of like the first genre and I'll let Dean jump in here to talk about a bit more of like the history there. But like, I think NFTs as a paradigm shift will extend far beyond art and into really information ownership on the internet as a whole. Um, and I think that that's going to translate like across different mediums, whether that's art, music, writing, most media on the internet, I think, once this is all said and done, will truly wind up being an NFT, kind of bold, but I think that's a, a hot take prediction that we'll see. Um, so yeah, that is kind of them in a nutshell, as well as the paradigm shift that we are experiencing today. Uh, well, yeah, art, art could be the the sort of Trojan horse that's really <laughs> brought them brought them to mainstream attention. Um, the first time I heard of NFTs was with these things called Crypto Kitties, which I think was probably in 2017, but mm. a series of collectible uh, drawings of kittens, crypto kitties, which you could also breed them, so you could create your own. But that was, I wouldn't say it's art. You could argue it's art, but it was more a mm -hmm. sort of collectible, kind of more a bit like a trading card maybe, or collectible game. And- It's like a Tamagotchi for 2017. Yeah, yeah, and those blew up, and some sold for a lot of money, though not not in the millions. Um, and there, there is a kind of there has been a big art cryptocurrency world crossover, definitely since then, particularly in places like Berlin. So there have been communities building quite small niche 
art NFT projects, but it seems to really have exploded um, in the popular consciousness over really just the last few months or so. Mm. Uh, I went I went to the gym this afternoon, and they have they had a Fox Fox Business News was playing on one of these screens with the sound off, but they just had a they just had a picture of the Beeple of Beeple's <laughs> five thousand days. They had a picture of Beeple's five thousand days, and it was crossed. It had a cross over the front of it, and then it said illegal in front. It's all like it said illegal question mark. Yeah, I didn't I. I, I, didn't, I couldn't tell what the story was about. And then it went to some other NFT. I think it was Taco Bell, something like that. Yeah, so Taco Bell did a, a rareable um, project. And then it went to Jack Dorsey of Twitter's first tweet, which he sold for a couple million uh, for charity. But, but they were all flashing up on Fox Business News and they were all crossed out and said uh, illegal. And then there was some kind of byline, something to do with the uh, SEC commissioner over here in the States. Hmm. I guess there are a lot of like those murky questions surrounding them and that's kind of what's fueling parts of the backlash and then Hmm. there's the other side of the coin which I mean they really are like a coin in a way there's the bad side that people are talking about and the good side and I guess what people are asking I mean Dean you spoke about these exploding into the art world and and the amounts of money that are being paid for them and unless you've been living under a rock, you would have probably seen the Beeple artwork, at, you know, either on the Fox mm-hmm. News. Hopefully you're not watching Fox News, but maybe another news channel um, and, you know, and seeing this amount of money, $69.3 million was paid for this Beeple artwork. Um, and we'll probably speak about that throughout this conversation, but um, I'm sure a lot of people are sick of hearing the word Beeple. But what does it actually, <laughs> like, mean to own an NFT? Because when we're speaking about these huge amounts of money being paid and then people from their understanding that it lives on, on the internet. So what does it mean and why are people paying $69.3 million? I mean, you get a chance to own a provably original piece of art, music, culture, creation from from a creator, like directly from that creator. And I think there's something that's very very unique in that provenance, like that, the the provable originality and the provable scarcity of these digital artifacts is now proving to translate into real value. And so I'm not really like an art historian or art buff. I barely collect anything outside of (laughs) shoes and prints, but I think that we're starting to see what was previously like almost an inaccessible appreciation of art and of provably original artworks, one of ones from your favorite creators, one of ones from your favorite painters or whatnot, um, as well as like the scarcity, like the the sheer lack of supply of the like amazingly scarce art. Like we're starting to see that poured over into the digital realm and what it means to have that scarce ownership show up in in virtual worlds or in, in, in the digital ecosystem. And like, if you think about how much of our lives are actually in commonplace already getting ported over to the digital realm, how do you flex your existing life? You post it on social media. Like, how do you share and interact with your friends? You do it in clubhouses and on Twitter. Ownership is kind of one of the last frontiers, if you will, to kind of port over into the digital space. And part of that was that we didn't have kind of like this provable, like provably all the way down to like a mathematical sense, 
original or canonical instance of media or information on the internet that could be owned. Mm. And NFTs give you that out of the box. Like that's part of why the paradigm shift is so amazing is that in its subtlety of being just what looks like a file or a GIF or a JPEG, it is 100% revolutionizing the understanding of how we own information on the internet. And like you can now have a provable first canonical instance of that iconic meme or that GIF and the value that that creates over its lifespan can actually like accrue back to the provable creator of that meme and that GIF. And that's like super special, you know? Mm. And I think early on, it looks like a novelty as like a toy and kind of to go back to what you were saying to you, like when you think about Fox business and all that stuff, like we used to see the same stuff for Bitcoin, terrorist financing, money laundering. It's like, the it's the root of all evil. It's going to disrupt the, and now it's like everybody in every public bank square, you name it, they're putting it on their balance sheets and they accept this payment, right? So like, it's amazing what that decade has done for crypto on the whole. I think we're in the first chapter of NFTs. Mm. And that's why you you feel this kind of parallel rejection almost like, oh, this is wild. It's like, oh, people are making all that money on the thousand dollar Bitcoin. Like now it's like 60K. <laughs> it's wild, right? And it's like a very widely adopted payment system. I think you're going to see the same thing happen for NFTs and not just art or media ownership, but just information on the internet. Mm. Um, and having full agency and full ownership and full autonomy over that information, I think is going to be one of the most powerful shifts that we've seen happen to the internet in like the last 30 years. I mean, the internet's only really been around like almost 30 years. Who could, who yeah. could say what it's going to be like 30 years from now, <laughs> especially with stuff like crypto and NFTs. <laughs> it's going to be kind of a scary thought as well. There's a horrifying <laughs> thought as we move towards a more dystopian. <laughs> but um, Dean, what, you know, in terms of the art world um, and what Dean's saying here, um, in terms of the technology that, you know, is, I guess it, the ideas around NFTs and the, the big selling point aside from the money is that they're democratizing the art world, this is quite a big claim, but Dean, what does, what do these like technologies and these advancements mean for like the traditional art world and traditional artists? Yeah, we're, we're not, that's not clear at all so far. Hmm. I don't, I don't think the traditional art world is, is doing much in the NFT space yet. Um, there are some artists uh, crossing over. I mean, if I'm, there's many art worlds, but if I'm talking about the kind of the real blue chip, the most famous kind of core part of the high art world, I don't think we know yet. I, I, I know some people in that space, like some friends who have started to make NFTs, sell NFTs, but it's a small number of people. There's a lot of uh, opposition to it from within the kind of traditional art world, even a questioning of, whether you should call these things art or, you know, even there's perhaps more interesting questions about, you know, what, what is an NFT? Is it, is this a new medium or is it, is it just like a form of proof you append to existing formats like mm. digital models, film, that sort of thing. On the other hand, you know, Christie's who did the people's sale is, is right at the heart of the art world. That's, that's kind of one mm. of the fundamental pillars of the whole art system is Christie's and Sotheby's, the two huge auction houses. Uh, Christie's sold people. Sotheby's is doing this project with an artist called Pack. And then you have 
maybe a few super galleries around them, like Gagosian, um, Hauser and Wirth, uh, Zwerner, those sorts of places. I'm sure all of those places have people on the case. I'm sure they're looking into what's possible, how they want to be involved, do they want to be involved, that sort of thing. So I think there's a lot of resistance, but of course, like these, these huge auction houses that are very central to the system for better or for worse mm. are involved. You know, the other side of it, Christie's probably got 14.5% of that sale, something like that, which is a lot of 69 million. But mm. with um, something like blockchain, there's no reason you actually need Christie's to do those oh. kind of sales, which is interesting, <laughs> you know? It's interesting that we have Christie's and Sotheby's at the NFT table so early in the NFT life cycle. Like mm -hmm. it took so long to get JP Morgan, BlackRock, like, like the credit suites of the, like the, the real institutional, the real financial institutions of the world, like the global financial system to participate. It's amazing how fast the global art system has decided to embrace NFTs. Like it's, it's 100% and Dean, to your point about disintermediation opportunities in the blockchain space, like there really isn't a need that we should have Christie's at the table. Like NFTs should by design give artists all around the world the ability to be their own Christie's or to be their own Sotheby's, you know? And like, granted, you don't get like the instant prestige by being your own Christie's and Sotheby's, but you get all of the power and universal distribution of your artwork out of the box with an NFT that you would if you were those two platforms. And so that's the real opportunity here. It's it's pretty bewildering that like, unfortunately due to like the hyper commercialization of NFTs right now, we've already onboarded the old world. <laughs> like they're, they're already like fully at the table participating and now executing sales on behalf of artists. It's like, it's like we broke through the fine arts barrier to then recreate the fine arts system. We just ported it over in this very, esque medium to now nfts right web 2-ish or very like old paradigm-ish just applying kind of or overlaying nfts and I, hey i don't blame them like i mean agencies record labels galleries like they all are trying to figure out how they can equitably participate in this space it's just amazing this the speed at which <laughs> they got to participating versus other previous like adoption periods of cryptocurrency has been like that's been pretty amazing and the last thing I was going to say when I almost jumped in earlier is I think NFTs feel like they have an opportunity to be like the internet's like universal media format. So whether it's an MP4, whether it's uh, a WAV file, whether it's an MP3 or if it's a JPEG or whatever type of media it is, it almost behooves you as a creator or an artist to mint that as an NFT in order to add greater permanence to that piece of media and in order to make it like provably original and provably yours on the internet. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that as a principle for NFTs, almost as like, again, like a file format for artists to start to explore should hopefully, I mean, hopefully it lowers the barriers or like lowers the, the burden of this commercialization where it's like, oh, I'm not going to do my NFT because I'm not going to make tens of thousands of dollars. And it's like, ah, oh, man, would you say that about like saving a JPEG? <laughs> or, or like, would you go yeah. ask to get curated to post on Instagram? Nah, you would just post on Instagram, right? Or like you would just save. And I think that's the broader opportunity for NFTs that people are kind of overlooking right now during this like 
69 million, you got to hit it big. It's like everything needs to be the winning lotto ticket or every post needs to get 100 million likes. And there's never been a system that worked that way. And mm. if you look at the numbers, like even in NF, like in this ecosystem, I think like in many cases, like average sales, of like just generally speaking, NFTs might be like half an ETH. Like that dwells in comparison to like the, the tens of millions of dollars that we're seeing made. And for the non-crypto mines out there, what's half an ETH equivalent to in say uh, US dollars? Yeah, today, I should look this up. Let's see if I can guess it. I'm guessing like half an ETH is like what, 750 bucks? Like yeah. 680 bucks? Now I want to look which it is, up to see how close I was. Which is, yeah. <laughs> a lot of money. Like yeah, it's <laughs> it's money. Um, and, and that's the interesting thing, I think, just because artists aren't making the $69.3 million, but I have seen people speaking about making a couple of thousand dollars, and that's life-changing to someone who is, you know, living a, the, the everyday life, um, which I, I do want to get into money in a little bit and talk about um, some of the fury and, like, outrage <laughs> around NFTs because that's, like, the fun part, but um, I want to also take a step back and and look at how we got here, because these things don't come out of nowhere. And Crypto Kitties, like you spoke about, D, oh Dean, you spoke about them. They were around in two thousand seventeen, and from my knowledge, the earliest NFT is from two thousand and fourteen, from a, a Rhizome, uh convention. I think one was sold on stage. I don't know the specifics to go into that. But speaking about things like the pandemic, Instagram, memes, Patreon, cause, like all these things seem to be a melting pot to have created this soup of NFTs that we have now. And I would love to hear both of your thoughts on like, how did we get here? Dean, you want to go first? Well, only, only to say that the kind of, free vision of the internet seems to be seems to be on a decline uh mm. kind of for better or for worse you know better because creators can can get some money for making things which is important important if you want to have a creative sphere but worse for someone like me because i can't just consume everything for free you know i was mm. i was definitely uh teenager of the age of like LimeWire and Kazaa and later mm -hmm. Pirate Bay and all that stuff. And just of like everything being free. And we've really had um, more and more kind of forms of paywalling or selling things. But I think last year in particular was, you know, the big media trends of last year are, I think, Substack and mm -hmm. like Patreon, Patreon-gated podcasts and increasingly kind of Patreon-gated communities, discords, that sort of thing, and of course, OnlyFans. So that's that's been a big and recent shift, I think. Um, and a lot of my friends now make a living from this sort of thing, you know. Mm -hmm. So so it has it has changed the way the way we make and the way we consume content. But it does mean uh, that you have less access. I I have a lot less access to things that that I would like. So I could just pay the you know, five bucks a month or whatever. <laughs> That's the thing, I guess. Yeah, like you said, we're so used to, I guess, Napster. I mean, I grew up on Kazar and Napster and I remember downloading my first song and it was just like life-changing. I mean, 
the, the digitization of culture generally and that being free and Instagram in terms of images being free, you just, I mean, there's that infinite infamous meme that's going around. That's like, you wouldn't screenshot an NFT or something. Is that it? I've definitely not got my cultural notes down, but I don't know if this backlash to the NFTs is like, but this should be free. You know, why are you making me pay for this? It feels like if we go back, back, like, I think I said this earlier, like the fundamental operating system of ownership on the internet is, is broken. And like, typically like we've had to monetize our ownership of information and media by restricting access to it. So like Mm -hmm. making things exclusively available behind subscriptions or making you have to pay to access them. And that's because the operating system of ownership has been like positioned onto systems like copyright. 400 year old archaic systems that honestly go back all the way to like, again, like Dutch East India trading company vibes. Like it's, it's Mm -hmm. in many ways, whether it's like information serfdom or creative serfdom on social media platforms, um, we are producing media that is owned by intermediaries like the big platforms of the world that are then monetizing that media or information by restricting access to it. So you need to sign up for a subscription and have to pay to listen to Spotify's music. The big platforms own the grid, they have the distribution, and they're now between the creator and their monetization. And I think we saw this play out in its most nascent, like its most like crippling example in social media, where like, yeah, all of those pictures were free, but all of us were freely providing Instagram with the billboards that they then monetized on their way to becoming a multi-billion dollar organization. Like we were seeding them content for free. And Mm -hmm. where was the value capture opportunity for creators? They had to do that off platform. They had to do that offline. They had to do that in exclusivity deals. I'll give you this post real estate and whatnot. Whereas I think the fun, like the pair, the the real paradigm shift for NFTs is kind of like this inversion of that power dynamic between creator and platform or between media and platform where now your your media no longer has to be bound to that platform or built on top of that platform in a way that they have ownership of it you don't have to give up ownership of your media to the platforms but instead with a universally accessible piece of media that is an nft the platforms can actually be built on top of your media and so creators that mint nfts that are fully owned by them that have full artist agency that they can set the terms and conditions to that are, that are freely accessible by any platform to build on top of, they can actually have ownership of their media and then platforms can be built on top of that to curate it. And I think in that inversion um, of those power dynamics, information now has the opportunity for arguably the first time ever and information meaning media, music, film, whatever, to both be free and universally accessible yet still valuable and expensive in the form that now value can accrue to this media as an asset instead of value accruing in the form of a cash flow through restricted access. And now you, Dean, can still freely listen to all of the music you want to listen to without it taking away from the creator's opportunity to capture value from it. And we haven't seen that on like a, a global level yet, like a global universally, like universally accessible liquidity if you will, and I, I don't mean to get like super financy or nerdy, but just like money accruing to an asset that's not bound to a single platform. So it's like, yeah, you have your Spotify revenue, but like what if all of that revenue could accrue to a self-sovereign piece of media? And so it's mm-hmm. not bound to just Spotify's payouts, but instead it can now receive bids or 
accrue value across all of these platforms, but still be that one universal free to access canonical instance of a song or of a music video or of a piece mm -hmm. of merch. Um, and I think like that's, we're starting to see this idea of like the big bad platforms of like the 2010s are dead and the big bad streaming platforms, those are dead. Mm -hmm. And I think we're in this internet renaissance where people have the tools now to reclaim ownership of their media and of the markets surrounding that media and realize the ownership that they have of their audience, that they can go wherever they want. They're the platform. Creators are the platform, artists are the platform. Like, look, they're showing up on NFT platforms, audiences are showing up on NFT platforms. Like, and I think there's an opportunity in that renaissance moment for them to use these tools to really like exit this serfdom and servitude that we've seen so many creators in for so long into like this, this new truly creator-owned ecosystem on the internet and like it doesn't have to compromise the openness and accessibility of information they can still be freely and universally accessible it's just it can now be valuable in a new sense that doesn't mm. require us to like restrict that access so promise of nfts <laughs> yeah and it sounds quite you i mean it sounds so utopian for anyone that hasn't i'm interested actually to hear what dean because i can see dean nodding <laughs> dean do you have anything to add to that well, no, that, that's, but that's the kind of the dream vision. I've heard uh, creators, people who make art, digital art, say something along those lines to me. You know, if you really believe in the project, if you really believe in blockchain and the potential of NFTs, then that's one of the dream visions you can go for. And I can see the appeal of that the world where you can just be your own gallery or your own magazine, your own platform, or you and your friends can do that. That is, that does change things a lot. It's like you could be way. your own, uh, like people can be their own publications almost in a sense now with just like a Twitter and a Substack, right? And I think what we're doing is in the first iteration of NFTs, it's like you can be your own auction house is like phase one but it's really beyond that. It's like, you can be your own publishing house. So you're getting publishing, media publishing out of the box. And like, if you think about a platform or a protocol like Zora, where you can mint text, you can mint audio, you can mint video, you can mint images, you can mint literally any file type, including like a stem, all of a sudden that's publishing for lyrics, that's publishing for music videos, that's publishing for songs. And you mm -hmm. get all of the same power that used to take teams and armies <laughs> of actuaries, lawyers, accounts, like all that kind of stuff that they provide for you at like these me mega corp labels and stuff. And you get that out of the box for free. Mm. Like that sort of publishing power we haven't seen put into the artist's hands, not out of the box in a way that actually accrues value and is proving to, like the model is proving to work. Um, we may, I don't know if we've ever seen that. Mm. Like, like it's one thing to disrupt an auction house like Christie's, it's another thing to disrupt publishing. And I think with the ability for artists to set resale royalties, which you can also do on the Zora protocol, like you can set a perpetual resale royalty so that anytime your NFT resells on the secondary market, you will get that royalty. That sort mm. of perpetual equity, again, out of the box for free is the kind of publishing and with like full transparency on a blockchain, that sort of like powerful publishing and transparency, like you just don't get that in the traditional music sense. That's all like yeah. opaque data that requires people to like, again, entire armies of researching teams and stuff like that. So 
I think and there's I think, a lot yeah. of underlying power there in NFTs. Yeah, and that technology seems to be the most, at this moment, like aesthetically looking at NFTs, the technology seems to be, for me, the most interesting thing about it, like what it can become and what um, maybe mm -hmm. what those pieces will begin to look like. And I do want to talk about aesthetics in a little bit, but actually you mentioned about Christie's disrupting or the NFTs disrupting Christie's, but some people might say it's the other way and that, that Christie's are kind of jumping on this money gold rush people are calling it they are definitely jumping on the money yeah 100 <laughs> percent, for sure for mm. sure yeah at the they're moment. not the only ones yeah I, I i just mean there's ways of there's ways you could now run an auction online using blockchain for instance mm. and you just wouldn't need you no longer need them there's ways where you can cut them out as the middleman um one other interesting facet of that, you know, you mentioned royalties or perpetual royalties. In when Christie's, Beeple is an anomaly here, but when Christie's are selling artworks, the artists are not seeing a penny of it because mm -hmm. they've already sold it to someone else who's selling it. So it does kind of, you know, it, it would, I think, be objectively better to have auction systems where the artist gets a percentage of resales. Yeah, it's oh, it's scary to think that that's just never been a thing <laughs> for artists. Christie, wait, I, I looked this up the other day. I'm like, how old is Christie's? Christie's is like 200 something <laughs> years old. They never pay royalties. <laughs> Bad pay on Christie's yeah. is crazy. <laughs> the secondary market is basically non-existent for artists, I guess, in the traditional. <laughs> It's just who's making the money, really. And I guess that's leading the conversations here in terms of this democratization, this decentralization of art worlds. It's an interesting thing. You do have artists represented by galleries uh, selling NFTs at the moment. And I think pretty much all of those, um, as far as I'm aware, they are just, they're just selling them directly themselves and they're not paying any commission to the gallery. Mm. Normally they'd pay like 40% commission. And mm. if they were selling something, they'd do it under the table and hope their gallerist didn't find out because you're really not supposed to be doing that. You might, but now it's kind of yeah. this gray area. Things are just getting started. So we actually just helped. And, and I guess like I'll take solace in the fact that the way that this mechanism works on the protocol is a, a one-time uh, fee rather than a perpetual fee. So we actually just helped the House of Fine Arts in London. They helped a um, a fine artist. Uh, I think it's Zhuangzi. I think it's his name. And he sold a piece last week. And I had a discussion with them about a week prior to us actually minting the piece, where we were trying to figure out like how we could get them to equitably like equitably participate in the sale, but not take away from the creator's resale royalty. Mm -hmm. Like I couldn't imagine a world in which the House of Fine Arts should get a cut of this sale forever. <laughs> like maybe they oh, help yeah. to promote this one exhibition, right? But I can't imagine in the third resale of this item, like or this piece, like them honestly deserving. <laughs> and I love that team, but like, come on, like that, all of that should be going to the creator. Mm -hmm. And so what we did is we actually um, we have this really cool thing called a sell-on share. And so, so we've actually designed a way for 
curators i think like that's really what galleries are doing in many cases is like they're they're a strong curatorial signal that a piece of art or that an artist is valuable to whatever community that they represent so we built a way for them to actually bake that that uh curation signal into the protocol level in the form of what's called a sell-on share which is just in so i'll just tell you how it works in practice so the house of fine arts actually was the first collector of Zong's piece, which is super dope. I hope I'm saying his name right also. I, if I butchered that, I'm really sorry, y'all. Um, <laughs> but what, it, what that did was it allowed him to be the person who minted his piece. And when he minted that piece, he also minted the market and his resale royalty with it. And so he is provably the original creator, not the gallery, not anybody else. And he got to set his resale royalty which I, I think he wound up sitting into like 20 or something percent or something like that. And so anytime it sells on the secondary market, he gets that, not the gallery. And he's always going to be the canonical, provable owner and creator, excuse me, creator of that piece. And then House mm -hmm. of Fine Arts, they offered him what's called a selling share. And they said, hey, if we sell it, we'll give you 50% of our sale. So they basically split the sale, but it's a one-time fee. So now you have profitable curation in a way where they collected the piece, they upsold it to their community and wound up selling for a few ETH, maybe like five or six ETH or something like that. They get their cut for this one sale, three ETH. The artist gets his cut, three ETH, but he keeps his perpetual equity anytime that that resells from that point forward. Mm -hmm. And so there's a way that you can kind of bake in at the protocol level, the opportunity for galleries to profitably curate and run cool exhibitions and add value in their curatorial signals to this awesome artwork but not have it take away from the equity of the artist. Like there's a lot of opportunity for curators to really boost the value of work. That does not mean that they should be owning any sort of <laughs> perpetual equity or resale royalty in that work, but they should still be able to participate. And I think it, it's that just, that whole story just brought up that example in my head where I was like, wow, we did this last weekend. And it, it seemed like it worked. <laughs> Everybody was pretty happy about it. And the creator now still has that full ownership of their secondary market, not the gallery. Which, uh, mm. which I was pretty excited about. And that's the exciting thing about the technology. And, you know, there are really exciting aspects to NFTs that I think people are missing because of all the hype that's going around. But one of the, the other positives, and we, we touched on this a little bit, was, you know, the democratization, the decentralization. And I guess from an art world standpoint, um, what does, like, the democratization and the decentralization of an art world actually look like? And, and is that something that we want? Like, do we want a completely flattened, if that's what it means, industry? I'd be interested to hear from you, Dean. Uh, well, personally, I like, I like gatekeepers. Like, I'm, I don't have, I'm not against um, some elitism in the arts, but, but that's just me. Mm. You know, we can have both. I don't, I don't think it's going to lead to a total democratization of the arts. It's just going to lead to a situation where if for whatever reason um, you haven't found yourself where you want to be or you have no interest in going through the kind of well-trodden path, you're just free to do your own thing. And that's good, right? Mm-hmm. Art is also, uh, art's not kind of thriving right now as a system anyway. So it's, it's good to shake things up. Um, do, do you think this is an exciting shake up or like a scary shake up? 
I don't think it's scary, but it's, it's just whatever people make of it. If I was young, if I was kind of starting out, I've, I've already found my way into the system and like I found a way to do that. Um, but if I was young, I think I'd find it very exciting. A lot of my friends, you know, my, my, my friends my age also find it exciting. Mm. It's always good to have kind of opportunity, new paths. And I think it is like, it's very, it's very, very young. It's dumb to me to say like, NFTs are good or NFTs are bad. They really can just be whatever anyone makes of them. It's just like a new technology. Mm. And the technology is still in its infancy too. You know, we're still in the kind of early stages of what might be able to be done, either technically in terms of what you can do with uh, making new kinds of digital artwork, or even in terms of like the resale um, royalties, like all of that stuff can go so much further. But in in art, we always want new things. You know, we, we always want something new, always want new mediums, new ideas. And there haven't been, there has not been a great glut of those recently. So I think to have anything new is good, to have anything that gives kind of new possibilities and to have anything that like shakes up the system is good. I think, I think a lot of people in the art world are, are furious about this, like either... Mm-hmm in terms of someone else getting all the money that they want to be getting Mm -hmm. or in aesthetic terms, like I have my own aesthetic problems with a lot of the work being put out or just in, um, or, you know, some people lean on like environmental readings or like people are angry for all sorts of reasons. But uh, I, I think it's good to make, to make these establishments and make the kind of system angry. It's a good sign. Mm. And three of the things I see that people are most angry about that's bringing up the most emotions are money, the environment, and the aesthetics. And we've touched a little bit on all of these. But I guess thinking about the money side, Dee, you are one of the co-founders of Zora, which is an NFT marketplace. You spoke a little bit about the work you guys do. How stable or unstable, or I guess the word is speculative, um, how like what's the market looking like and and who's selling like who's who are the people that are not the beeples not the nyan cat but the the everyday kind of artists who's selling oh man i think you have a lot of everyday musicians uh latasha is one of my favorites um coco mamba is another one of my favorites uh visual artists like ja one of my Mm. favorites um you're starting to see uh, more mainstream artists take to this as a medium of almost creative freedom. Bobby Hundreds, good friend of mine, founder of the Hundreds, he mints a lot of his essays and photography, and those have been performing really well. Um, so I think you're starting to see people really. Zora is a, a little different in that it's 100% open and accessible, and it's it's not a marketplace. It's a protocol for anyone to freely access and mint NFTs of any file type that they want, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think people are people are appreciating that bit of creative freedom there. Um, and then in terms of how stuff is performing, I think like we have the big ticket sales, like there's six figure sales from artists like Disclosure and stuff like that. But I think in the longer tail of the market, you have a lot of people who are 
on average, you know, selling work for about like, again, half an ETH, which today is like 900 and something dollars and mm -hmm. maybe like 0.25 ETH and stuff like that. So like smaller, smaller, longer tail artists are still selling a lot of work that I think probably would have otherwise wound up on like Bandcamp or, you know, maybe their Instagram profile just to like build their audience and stuff. They're actually monetizing that work in a way that on aggregate seems to be pretty impactful. Mm -hmm. uh, many of them coming back to the platform to mint various different types of media, um, asking for new features and whatnot. So I think the long tail of NFT creators, I think, is is much longer than we think. Um, and that market is proving to be much healthier and the model is proving to be much more effective than uh, we may have anticipated for them, which is really exciting. Yeah, yeah I, you mentioned Ja, and I, I assume you're speaking about Ja Reynolds, who is on Zora, and is that who you're referring to, the artist? I think so, yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, I interviewed Ja recently, and since following him, you know, he, he told me that he's selling consistently, and he sells across a couple of different platforms, and I think he's been selling for maybe six months, maybe just a bit less, but through his Instagram mm -hmm. stories, he's he's always posting other people in the space, and there was a and, and these are the stories I think are being missed by the mainstream media who are just kind of focused on, on the like grotesque side mm -hmm. of it, which is the Beeples. Um, but he, I recently came across a, an artist called X shells, X dot shells on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And they had said they'd only just started minting and selling NFTs the past month. And they're about to pay off debts that their mom had acquired from their university degree. And crazy. Like those are the success stories I'm really seeking out to find. And Ja also sp spoke to me about these communities which are paying it forward for more artists to get into the space. The Mint Fund, that's it. They take a portion of your sales and they they, they pay it forward to somebody else. And and mm -hmm. these are the exciting stories that I'm really invested in. And the superpower of crypto that nobody talks about is community. And yes. for the last... 10 years or so the crypto community has been vibrant and it has been resilient and it has been interconnected in a way that has been super supportive of like the fellow participant and i think now you're starting to see what crypto can do when that superpower is applied to arts mm. and again like nfts again first we're in the first early inklings of the first chapter and like, this isn't even talking about what communities can do and they can collectively organize themselves on the internet and then accrue capital together, like DAOs and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I think what you're seeing and what you're into with the Mint Fund on his fellow community members as well is like crypto is this crazy community supercharger where everybody who's participating feels like they have ownership and everybody who's participating feels like they can create or affect change. And at some point in time throughout this 10, 12 year life cycle that we've all been on, if you stuck around long enough, everybody's had a moment of like winning, like to some extent mm -hmm. of like, or seeing somebody else win or helping somebody collaborate to win. And I think like, that snowball is rolling out of finance with Bitcoin, Ethereum and all that jazz and into culture. And mm -hmm. it's really exciting to see kind of, um, you know, newcomers to the crypto space have that appreciation for the real superpower here, which is community. Mm -hmm. And I have to kind of um, have to now speak a little bit about, you know, the, the, the other side of the coin. We speak of this, this good and bad sides. And I've seen a lot of, I've seen a couple of artists 
talk about their artworks being stolen and minted and then turning up on platforms and being sold. Um, so obviously there's an issue there. People have spoken about it being a pyramid scheme. People have said it could be used for money laundering. Um, and then, you know, there's obviously the environmental impact, which we'll get onto in a second. But how valid are these concerns and how how worried should people be? And as one of the co-founders of Zora, like what 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 are you guys doing to make sure money laundering or fraud or anything like that is being minimized. Yeah, for sure. Um, on the money laundering side, I mean, our, our rails are, I mean, we, we're just crypto native. You connect a MetaMask, like I, there's no fiat payments happening or money. Like I, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I've, I think that's like a, a, a like crypto flood that has been surrounding crypto for like literally eternity. And that is not happening. Also, anything much ever <laughs> Um, yeah when it comes to the other concerns around having artworks stolen and resold and whatnot um we've implemented some cryptographic checks at the protocol level that enforce uniqueness um which gives creators the opportunity to really um like prove that they have the digital original of a file mm -hmm. um in the case that there's copies um, or that there's people who are trying to post work that is not, that creator will one, not be verified on Zora. I think two, we will promptly like get the verified creator contacted and onboarded to have them mint and take ownership of that market. Um, and then three, we'll direct people to what is then a verified creator market so that the liquidity doesn't accrue to a uh, to an unverified asset. Copies on other platforms, I think this is like a broader um, like this is going to take a lot of community collaboration across protocols, across other platforms to make sure that this doesn't happen too often um, or doesn't happen at all. I don't know mm -hmm. if there's any like immediate uh, cross-platform or interoperable fix for us to work on. I think that's going to take a lot of community collaboration, but I'm confident that we can get there. And I see a lot of whether that's like efforts that Nifty makes. Um, efforts that Rarible makes, OpenSea, there's a lot of effort across like the top of the system to to make sure that this doesn't happen. Um, and again, I, I think that's something that we pride ourselves in making sure that we are as cryptographically and as provably self-custody and 100% owned by the creator as possible. And I think that's how we try to mitigate all that risk is we actually allow the creator to fully own that experience and fully own uh, really their media and the uniqueness there. And so I, I think these are concerns that are probably valid for artists to have that are evolving as platforms adjust to really this like crazy wave of interest and excitement that's happening in the space. And I think you got the bre like best and brightest people in crypto that are on it to, uh, to make sure these things are mitigated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. I mean, there's just, I guess it's kind of like looking at the conversations online and that, you know, that's one of the the recent ones that seems to be coming up, but it's not, I mean, the, re the traditional art world isn't without um, issues of fraud or, you know, money laundering. I mean, I think these things have been going on for decades, years, centuries. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about the aesthetics because I know that Dean, you have very strong views on the aesthetics of the NFTs. And I wanted to see if we could, if you, if you could help us connect perhaps where these, what these aesthetics mean, why are these the dominant aesthetics? What, you know, is this just like net art viewpoint three? 
It's not really net art, though some of it is. I mean, there are net artists, by which I mean like the kind of first wave of net artists from 10 years ago. So some of those people are, are making works. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly where it comes from. I, I think a lot of it is just kind of online digital art communities, um, but it's not a world I know very, I know very deeply. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just not, I'm, I'm not so into the kind of general aesthetic. That's the kind of prevalent aesthetics, but that's just my taste. But it's not, it's not to say, I'm kind of, I'm interested in the technology. I think if you look at where like CGI art forms are like computer rendered abstraction, I, th I think that's one of the really interesting places for where art, all forms of art, regardless of whether it's an NFT or not, could go in the next 10 years. But, um, but I haven't seen so much that really, that really appeals to me, but I, I'm kind of a cynic. I, I, like, I don't like a lot of stuff, so my, it doesn't matter so much. I, I like David Rudnick's Rose. I liked David, mm -hmm. the first Shout out to David Zora, Rudnick. shout out to David. Yeah, that, that was, uh, that's actually- I think he's like five stems in now. Yeah, I think I well, I think he should have stopped after the first, but but, I get, but like the first one, I, I, I thought the, I thought the first one that was the first kind of NFT I saw that I I was like, yeah, that's it's just so well timed and it's like it's it just makes sense what it looks like when he released it on Valentine's Day at this kind of this like point in a growing mania that he released it. That's the first thing I saw that I was really like, this is a real cultural object of our times. You know, mm -hmm. this kind of belongs in the, the timeline of what happened in culture in the 2020s. Say. I also like what, uh, what Ezra Miller is doing also on Zora. Ah, I also on Zora. Zora is the NFT underground. It's where all <laughs> of the people who are really doing vibey stuff <laughs> are minting their work. <laughs> I like what Darren Bader is doing on Foundation as well, just just for balance. <laughs> <laughs> I can't give it all to you guys. I have to take it somewhere else. Um, I guess, you know, speaking about the, the aesthetics, I guess this is a question for both of you, um, but what is driving people? So... I guess when you're looking at it, you know, an artwork that maybe from not from a blue chip artist, you might you might buy it because there's an emotional connection. You might like the aesthetics of it, but what is driving people to buy most? You know, so many NFTs. Like, what is it about them? Is it the money? Is it the aesthetic? Is it like you said? Is it this this idea of owning something? I mean, it's probably a combination of all of those things. I think like philosophically if you zoom out you have to ask the question like why do people collect in the first place you know like mm -hmm. why do people collect memorabilia why do people collect trading cards and the like and i think we're seeing kind of like the digital or again like the internet renaissance of like what it means to collect on the internet now and like we haven't really mm -hmm. had this opportunity to like before it's like it's honestly feels like quite net new in many ways <clears throat> even if that started with crypto kitties in 2017 um and then i think in some of the more like crazier cases with these gifts and memes 
like these are these are pieces of internet history and like internet artifacts like muy fresco minted this meme on zora a few weeks ago with like the the durag with the sunglasses kind of down and i was like oh wow this is like an iconic piece of internet history and the creator of that meme or that gif or whatever can now reclaim ownership of that and then have a market around it that they own and start to accrue value for this internet artifact that is proliferated across the web so i think that's like in many cases what it is as well as like some of these internet art pieces are just that they're like pieces of internet history like these mm. gifs and memes they're like iconic moments that in many ways by being minted can be again like shared with collective memory in a lot of ways and i, I think there's a nostalgia that probably intertwines with um an availability or early adoption of crypto <laughs> if you will that is now supercharging these this appreciation both in like the the monetary sense as well as like the intrinsic appreciation of the art as like this piece of internet history um and that's like the perfect marriage if you will a perfect storm for like a crypto collector spinning 350 ETH on a gif <laughs> like it, it's like that moment of like both like early adoption understanding of internet history or appreciation of that and like excitement about the time we're in to collect these things that could be could have like speculative value down the line or increase in value down the line i think that's like the trifecta that's making people super excited about this stuff um mm. and and dean you said you were cynical about this and and i had listened to i've read read your column obviously i've listened to your podcast with the red scare would you call this art would you call nfts art i guess yeah yeah that's i think it's art i mean you can question whether some of the some of these collectibles are art, but I don't think they're even supposed to be art. But you know, mm. there's things like CryptoPunks. Um, I don't think it's art, but I don't know. I don't know that the people that are making it or buying it think it's art either. Some do, some don't. So there are gray yeah. areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those definitely feel like true collectibles um, mm. versus like art pieces. The, the the there's kind of these parallels between the streetwear hype, the streetwear culture in terms of the drops, you know, like mm. this all. And then when we think about streetwear and we think about those kind of drops, and then obviously the secondary market, we think a lot about money again. And what is the reason to to use those drops? Like why why is why is the NFT world employing them in that way? They're making a lot of money. I think a lot of the, <laughs> like the open editions, while they're great, they're paradoxical in their pursuit of scarcity and that they afford an abundance of scarcity and almost an oversupply of artistic goods or scarce goods to the market in a way that long-term, I think could be detrimental to early purchasers who may get caught holding a bag for an oversupplied asset. Like in the uh, early 1990s, mid 1990s, trading cards went through a similar bubble here where there was an explosion of value in baseball cards, Ken Griffey cards, which typically sold for $7 were then selling for like $7,000. Mm -hmm. And the baseball card companies found tactics to then overproduce and they flooded the baseball card market. And what was once like a very lucrative and healthy secondary market for cards, which had all these market stats and appreciation, 
I was quickly saturated in a lot of ways. And people who had paid thousands of dollars for cards were now holding the bag on a mm -hmm. card that was worth like 40 bucks. And so I think we have to be very careful that we are not flooding the NFT market or marketplaces with less than scarce assets, which may have volume in the short term, but over the long term span or lifespan may not prove to have, you know, the lasting power or longevity that real art pieces do. Mm -hmm. uh, so things like one of ones, I think are dope. I think the drop model of the open editions is it's good for making a lot of money, but it's unfortunately a bit broken. And then I, I think some of the other like hype moments and drops, I think I get that because like you want to add to the scarcity of the moment for getting the, the good. But um, I think there's other ways that we can add scarcity and accessibility without adding abundance. Mm -hmm. Okay, so one of the one of the biggest criticisms being leveled at NFTs right now is its impact on the environment. Um, and there's a lot of differing opinions on this, depending who you speak with. Uh, I think it was the artist Mimo Etkin's Medium essay, which was the unreasonable ecological cost of hashtag crypto art that kind of broke open the gates on, on this conversation. I could be wrong. Um, but the way that Mimo spoke about it was likening the energy spend of one NFT to flying for 1500 hours. And he mm. described a series of comparisons in this way and it's unleashed this cloud that threatens to overshadow some of the positives we've spoken about um so every time someone attaches their name to an nft the most recent example being gorillas um they're getting kind of shot down and shamed and it's 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 interesting to see how the space will navigate its way out of that conversation mm -hmm. um and i first of all i wanted to ask you both what your thoughts are on on these criticisms are you concerned? Are either of you concerned? I think if you zoom out, these criticisms are more broadly applicable to proof of work blockchains, which I get. And there's a lot of innovation that's pushing us in a more healthy direction and a more sustainable direction, mm -hmm. including Ethereum moving to like to proof of stake. And so and what does that mean for like the the non crypto head? Sorry to interrupt. Oh, for the, the non crypto the proof, of, the proof of work, the proof of stake. Confirming transactions on the Ethereum blockchain um, currently operates on what's called a proof of work network, which requires a lot of mathematical computation. Proof of stake is an alternative way to process or confirm transactions on the network, which dramatically reduces the amount of computational effort required and thus reduces the amount of energy consumption as well. Mm -hmm. um, Ethereum is moving away from proof of work and to proof of stake. I think one of the big criticisms that there's other chains which are available for people to do to like explore NFTs on, um, that's like a relatively novel thing. Many of these chains are like freshly brand new. And so they don't have the same sort of network effect. They don't have the same sort of piping and they don't have the same sort of infrastructure that Ethereum offers in many cases. I think that many are proving to be competitive, but they just don't have that same sort of robust network effect. And so zooming out again this isn't an nft problem this is mm -hmm. again like this is a broader ethereum um community issue that the, the community is actively trying to tackle and i think again probably by in, in the next few months here like you'll start to see solutions rolling out which should mitigate a lot of these risks and then in other cases there are solutions like lazy minting and draft minting um, which reduce the amount of computational effort required on nfts that are using ethereum today 
these are some of the things that we're exploring at Zora while we're also currently offsetting our carbon emissions um, by purchasing offsets. And so I think crypto has been going through this sort of energy consumption issue for some time and has continued to improve and innovate its way out of it. I think you'll see that happen, if not at an accelerated pace for, for NFTs. Hmm. And Dean, do you have uh, opinions on these concerns in terms of the great amount of energy being used? Is the traditional art world not just as like heavy energy spend as... Yeah, of course. I mean, the traditional artwork uses, of course, it makes huge emissions. Um, we all know that. But um, I, no, I think the problem is, uh, I think people say that th their problem should be with Ethereum blockchain, not with NFTs, because the amount of transactions, NFT transactions, ultimately makes no difference to the output of the Ethereum blockchain. The emissions will be the same regardless of whether people mint NFTs or not. Those emissions just come from the blockchain and the blockchain's always running. So I think right. it's kind of, I don't think it's a good argument from a logical stance, a logical perspective. But yeah, I mean, of course, so you look for ways that the Ethereum blockchain can consume less energy. And there are ways of doing that, um, you know, like we just heard. And there's other possible blockchains that could be used. But I think more in the here and now, if you do, if that is a concern, then people should just um, buy offsets, right? And I think so the, the NFT transactions don't actually create emissions in the sense that the blockchain um, runs anyway. But if you kind of say, okay, but they are being made, so they should take a share of those emissions. If you kind of take uh, Mimo's math and say that's correct, then you're gonna be, it is quite high emissions going by his logic. And the, right. the offsets are, are a lot. I think, I think it would be about 800 bucks, say for each, for each NFT like that that could be a lot lower or higher depending on how you work it out. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if you're selling works for like 10,000 or millions, like that's not a problem. If you're selling for 600 bucks, that's, that's a big problem. Um, mm -hmm. But I, but I think that's, yeah, there's, I think that's the kind of obvious solution. If, if that's what concerns you as an artist, there is like an obvious way around it, which is just to mm. pledge to pay the offsets or work with a platform that will buy the offsets or partially do the offsets. You know, there's there's kind of ways of looking looking at doing it. Someone like Grimes, for instance, uh, did all her offsets. Or, or actually, no, she donated to an NGO that was tackling climate mm -hmm. change as part of her sale. I would imagine... Um, gorillas would would do the same right damon alban's quite a kind of environmentally minded guy I, I believe that's why people are so up in arms about it because they had that album you know a decade ago which was talking about climate change and saving the world i believe sorry i'm not a gorillas fan but um it's kind of going with in a sense of like the group think like that's the common argument right now that it's an environment this is the environmental issue i can't tell if we're just cynical as a society whereas when these new technologies come in 
Yeah, we are. We are. Yeah, that's we we live in a very cynical time. Yeah, and I guess it's you know from the art world perspective, this is like like when Duchamp did Fountain. Was this the reaction that he had? I don't know. I'm comparing NFTs to these quite monumental art movements, but Warhol soup cans. You know, isn't this typical? I think I'd, I'd imagine Duchamp had something similar. I can't remember the exact criticisms, but in the sense that I'd imagine he was criticised on kind of moral grounds, which mm. is what's going on here. Kind of the argument is saying, you are an artist, you're creating these NFTs, they're bad for the environment, therefore you are a bad person. You are mm. doing a, something immoral, you're performing an unethical act. And that's kind of a, that's something that's been used in criticism going back many centuries, you know, from the appearance of nudes in paintings and kind of Renaissance onwards to, I don't know, anything that could be construed as homoerotic or, so there is a long history of these kind of moral judgments being used against new art forms. And it's not a, it's not a pretty history, you know? I think looking back, we'd rarely say, oh, I was really on the side of the critics there. So, so even though it seems like it's all coming from a, a very good place now, I, I do think you want to be, you want to have a bit of wariness of people making like morality-based criticisms of yeah. things that are happening in culture. Um, there is an, an interesting difference here is that what's been criticized is not the content of the artwork, but yeah. the kind of the, the medium of it. Um, and there is like a wider context, of course, that like the whole art world is run on all sorts of like dubious sources of money and dubious sources of labor exploitation and all sorts of bad things. And that stuff is being protested as well. Like it's not just... NFTs, the, the, the entire art system is going through different forms of reckoning at the moment. Mm. Um, yeah. but, but I would say like th these are problems that can be solved. I think it's, it's wrong to think about it like this means NFTs are inherently bad. You know, mm -hmm. there are many different ways to tackle this problem. And if we want to go ahead with that, this technology, we should just say, okay, so how do we tackle it? Mm -hmm. At least there's a plan for it. That's the thing. There is this plan that's being set out, this movement from POW to POS, um, and it's in it's in place, and it's, it's quite relatively new. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about the carbon offsets because I have seen criticism towards this as well, and there's an artist, climate, climate activist artist called Joni Lamercia. I don't know if I've totally mispronounced their name, but they responded to you actually, D, on Twitter. Um, and once you had tweeted that Zora had purchased 50 tons of carbon offsets, and Joni had replied that, please be aware that offsets only make sense if the impact is mitigated first by using alternatives to ETH and POW. So I guess, yeah. you know, we are looking at carbon offsets as the temporary solution, but is it? Is it? He said it's been called greenwashing, you know, this term. Yeah, I think what Joni was astutely pointing out is that, um, you know, if you were aware of these things um, to the full extent that people are today, 
prior to designing your system that there's opportunities for you to decide to use alternatives to the Ethereum blockchain. Mm. Um, other already existing proof of stake systems or um, maybe even side chains and L2 solutions. I think that a lot of people who have invested in building and developing the Ethereum ecosystem are probably thinking about or exploring those solutions. It's unfortunate that the, the criticism is happening in hindsight and in retrospect of design decisions and build decisions. It's like, you shouldn't have built your system on, on this blockchain instead of like exploring opportunities to collaborate on ways that, you know, we could either make interoperable systems or migrate more easily from these systems. Like, I think there's a bit of um, hyper criticism there, you know, mm. for a design decision that was, you know, like building these sorts of systems and building these sorts of solutions for creators. Like they take months if not years of, of design thinking, um, as well as like building. And so to, to boil down the switching cost to something as simple as like you're greenwashing when you're already pretty invested into an ecosystem like Ethereum, but you're trying to do your part. I think that's the kind of criticism that we may want to um, not avoid because I appreciate where he was coming from, but I think it's the kind of criticism that can make people trying to do the right thing, even mm -hmm. though they've already invested in certain systems like Ethereum. Like that, I mean, it's like, it's not really productive in either case. Like it's informative, I appreciate that, but now like it's like discouraging people to then do kind of a near-term thing that they could do even while they're exploring that system. And then it's just kind of like this recurring, the, the productivity of the insight sometimes fails to meet the intentions of uh, the share in this case. Being yeah, I, that, that makes a lot of sense. I kind of want to wrap this up a little bit um, now that we've spoken about all the, we've spoken about some of the pros and the cons and hopefully people are getting a more balanced view on what's happening through the lens of the art world. Um, we've managed to get through basically this whole podcast without speaking about people, <laughs> but um and this is uh, this is something I read yesterday. The bio of the 500 days artwork was this guy called Medicoven, and he was up until recently anonymous, and then he's revealed his identity. And he has also said that he thinks that the artwork, People's 500 Days, is going to be worth one billion dollars at some point. But not just that. That. He also says it's the artwork of the generation. And I'm really interested to hear Dean's views on this in terms of, I mean, I think I know your answer, but people's 500 days, is it the artwork of the generation? Uh, no, no, it's not. I don't, I don't think it will retain its value either, though. Like, I don't, I don't think they'll be able to resell that for more than 70 million or anywhere near. But they don't. They don't have to either. So, no. Mm. They. It's not. It's not that much money for them. Metacoven and they're kind of interesting because they're really. They're really dedicated to the metaverse, like mm. they kind of, they want us to just leave uh, the physical world behind and go into this, virtual sphere. It's. It's not what I'm about, but they seem to. Uh, really believe it and if, if you go on their website the metapurse website like it's it's quite a crazy website it's worth looking at 
some of us are coming out of this pandemic, you know, it's looking a bit brighter on the other side. There's a bit of light at the end of the tunnel. How will the NFT landscape kind of collide once we're back out into the real world and we're not on our computers, we're not on the internet? Are we going to see these worlds remain relatively separate, but with these kind of Christie's auctions or are we going to see NFTs being exhibited in galleries or people's homes? I think you'll definitely see them exhibited in galleries and in art fairs when those return. That's that's something to look out for. Um, there is a show coming up at a Nagel Draxler Gallery mm-hmm. in Germany, which is it's a very esteemed gallery was kind of involved in representing some of the first conceptual artists so it's a it's a very serious gallery and this guy Kenny Schachter yeah who's like a New York artist dealer curator kind of troll interesting guy is, is curating a show of NFTs there mm-hmm. uh, that I think will go from like high artists making NFTs to like kind of digital native NFT artists it's going to be like a weird mix, but it's it's something to look out for. It's definitely well, no. those two worlds colliding. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see, especially because we don't even really know what the traditional art world is going to look like in real spaces because we haven't fully been free from the pandemic. So it will be interesting to see them both collide. Um, D, are there, are there possibilities of that we're not yet seeing? Are there like potentials within NFTs that I guess thinking about the space that it is now, it's kind of, you know, overshadowed by a, a few of these issues we've spoken about, you know, it's overshadowed by the the mainstream news's people, um, headlines. Is there potential that we're not yet seeing that we should be seeing kind of in this next phase, like beyond the growing pains? Yeah, I think... I think there is. I think that potential of extending NFTs and this paradigm shift outside of just art and into really like the concepts of what like neo social media could look like, uh, neo information ownership could look like. I think there's also kind of the early inklings right now, and I think what will be like the fully fleshed out stuff by kind of like the end of this year. Um, like collective creation, collective curation, uh, collective ownership, minting, um, and like real community actions around NFTs. I think NFTs are kind of like this atomic unit of information ownership. And now when communities can start to collectively mint them, curate them, and come together to pool capital in order to all sorts of cool emergent behavior. And then to your point earlier, this is this is not a Zora take, it's a personal take. I am really excited for like there's a combination of kind of scarce physical moment or scarce IRL moments and scarce digital content that I think we'll see intersect. Where like I really think some of the most valuable media over the past, like like Lil Uzi Vert diving off a stage and you have like that piece, like that Instagram video of him jumping up. Like I think that's a kick-ass NFT. And I think that yeah. on a loop of a physical moment, like that's going to be a rare moment that like, unless you were there, you can't capture. 
and you can't have that I think is going to be pretty dope. So like there's a video of Travis Scott performing Antidote. And I remember I used to be an auditor in London. <laughs> and like I was in a suit and tie in Credit Suisse. I was working at KPMG. It was crazy, man. I was sweating on the tube, the whole thing, right? <laughs> and I hated it. Like I absolutely hated it. And I wanted to be a rapper. Like I secretly was like, I want to be a rapper producer. And I remember watching this video on my KPMG laptop of one of the first Travis Scott performances of Antidote at like South by Southwest. And I like I legitimately remember the exhilaration that I felt watching it. Dang, 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 and when he jumped yeah. and the whole it had like this nightlight green crate like night vision look to it. It was insane. I try to find that video now, can't find it. Don't even know what to search. I have no idea what wow. I would call it. If it was minted, I think that's like a $10 million video. It's like literally the when, when he leaked the song. Yeah. And like you can't get that performance back, right? You can't get that moment of culture back. And so I think you're going to start to see like scarce physical moments like that get captured and memorialized in our collective memory as NFTs. And like, those are going to be super valuable. And then like cultural provenance of like, like I'm from Atlanta and there was a whole lot of dance moves that came out when I was a kid, like, uh, like walk it out or snap your finger, like all of like the snap dances. Right. And I'm like, there's so much cultural provenance around like motion capture and like dance moves that I think you'll start to see IRL, like, like like in like real life provenance for dance moves, mm-hmm. <laughs> like you'll you'll be able to mint culture in a way that um, I don't think we're seeing in just like the current visual arts form, but I think in like the actual like mint the motions of the dance, mm-hmm. or like choreography can be minted without requiring like a video of it, but instead having the actual choreography in motion capture minted. Um, like whether that's in unity or whether that's like the actual dance or whatever. So I think there's like a whole bunch of galaxy brain stuff out there that like we'll also see as we start to kind of like upload what's starting with art, but really start to upload culture to this new system of ownership or this new mm-hmm. operating system of ownership, which I think is going to be pretty exciting. And Dean, do you think that that sounds like a great place <laughs> to be? Um in terms of the hopes, the future of this, the hopes of the future, or do you have other hopes for this space? Yeah, that that sounds fine to me. I like the idea of uh, memories, you know, being Mm. able to hold on to, hold on to precious memories. It's very Proustian, right? Um, I would like to see, I'd just like to see some really wild or, beautiful kind of digital abstract art. You had this moment about a century ago when painters, abstract painters like Kandinsky started doing these beautiful new forms of abstraction. I'd I'd like to see what's possible now with the kind Mm. of various CGI software. I think it's coming. It feels very, it feels like those are both two hopeful notes to end on. Um, I appreciate you both being here with me and for everyone listening. And thank you so much, guys. And yeah, I guess watch this space. There's a lot more to come. <laughs>